0: I feel I want to poke the screen to make sure you are all real, but you are definitely real. Uh, we're delighted, of course, to have you here tonight. You survived 18 months of COVID and eight hours of rain to get here, so thank you very much. Well. As you have all gathered, if you're following what we're up to at Instec, our live events are back. And whilst I really enjoy our private chats with our guests over Zoom, there is nothing quite like interviewing somebody in front of an audience of over 200 people in the room to keep us all on our toes. Thank you to all of you, our regular listeners, loving all the comments coming in. Top one this week is from Dan from Howden, who told me he'd given up listening to podcasts about football and is now listening to Instec. Well, I'm not too sure what that says about the state of English football clubs, soccer for those of you in the US. But as I'm sure you've noticed, Dan, when Robin Mertens is in the chair, you'll still get your occasional football fix. Now, if it's your first time listening, well, you made it this far. So please do hang in there. I stopped talking in a moment. And this week we've got four excellent founders speaking to us. Now this was the first half of our recent live event back in the steelyard in London and each of our guests had launched their company or come over to the UK in one case about five years ago. At that time they'd been up on stage with us talking to us about what they are doing and we are delighted to say they are still around and in fact doing extremely well. Causation or correlation you can be the judge. So We asked them back on stage, they're all corporate members, to find out what they're up to today, how things have been going since we last heard from them, and of course, importantly, their advice to today's founders. Now, we'll be bringing you the second part of that event, the chat with the new arrivals, to find out what they're up to, and the superstars of tomorrow, I'm sure, in a future episode. First on stage was Ed Klinger, CEO of Flock. Now, you can get the full story about Flock on podcast 126, one of our most popular episodes. After Ed, I'm talking to Ollie Brew from CyberCube and another success story this week when I spoke to someone that had approached CyberCube for a job after hearing our interview with CEO Pascal Millier on episode 120. A Win, win, win there, I think. For our final two guests, Robin is up on stage, first with Andre Symes, joint CEO of Genesis, And then Jonathan Spry, CEO and co-founder of Envelop with some breaking news. Well, let's hear it from Ed first. Well, Ed, I don't know about you, but I'm a bit nervous because every time we've been together before, we've been on the other side of the screen and we've got all these real people here today. (laughs) So we can't we can't edit each other out of the things we say that we don't want to. Apologies in advance. Listen, it's great for you to join us. Um, I I think probably everybody in the room will have come across Flock, but just for those that haven't, uh, you started life as a commercial drone insurer, very quickly became the leading commercial drone insurer, so decided it was time to pivot. You're now looking at auto fleet insurance. You just recently raised uh, $17 million and are now, I know, are looking to build your business. But what have I missed on that that we need to talk about?
1: So that's a really good summary. I think one thing that's particularly useful for this audience maybe is that we actually didn't start in commercial drone insurance, we started in commercial drone risk analysis. So we built a platform to actually understand commercial drone flight risk in real time. If you can pull in weather data, location data, traffic data, uh, and you know exactly where and when a drone is flying, our thesis was you can calculate that risk. And it was actually at this event, maybe five years ago, I'm looking at you, uh, that we stood up and we did the one-minute shout-out at the end of the session. We said, look, we've got this idea. We think we might be able to turn that risk analysis score into a price, because if you can score risk, then our thesis was you could price risk. And that's actually where we met the first hire who ended up coming into our insurance team and helping us partner with insurers and turn that risk scoring into a price. So... We owe a lot of our success to Instech, actually.
0: Well, I mean, I think a modest amount of our success to the Instech. I know know you've got a great team with Anton and and you and the rest of them. Uh, It is another story, isn't it, that sort of great ideas find insurance eventually and grow from that. Uh, Now, just picking on that Instech theme and just the theme for tonight and your advice to founders... Network communities are really important when you're starting off a business and growing a business. What's been your experience of how you've, you've grown over the last five years with the people you've come across in all sorts of different areas?
1: Yeah, so I often give the same piece of advice to, to kind of early stage founders, which is to be really, really open with your ideas. I think there's a bit of a misconception with early businesses that you need to be cagey or secretive in case someone else comes and does your idea better. We've taken a very, very different approach at Flock. We've been always loudly talking and boasting sometimes about what we do and trying to get people excited about it because that's what's resulted in us bringing in some excellent hires, advisors, investors. And kind of personal advice, I think, to founders is do your absolute utmost to build those networks early and to build a peer group of kind of friends and advisors around you. So as a kind of silly anecdote, I started a WhatsApp group called the InsurTech Mafia, where I invited kind of five friends who ran InsurTechs. This was maybe four years ago. And now it's a, a community, I guess you could say. I've 40 founders, and we're sharing advice about all of these challenges and problems that um, InsurTech CEOs and founders seem to face more than any other cohort of founders. And it's been immensely, immensely valuable events like this coming up and just talking very openly and honestly, not only about successes, but also horrendous, horrendous failures, which every single founder and CEO will, or even early stage employee will recognise. I think being vulnerable and open and um, kind of expressive about those hard times as well as the good times is really, really important because you're more likely to attract the people who are excited by those problems and those challenges rather than the people who shy away from them. And you need the people who are excited by those challenges in the early stages of your business. So I'd say it's been one of the most kind of instrumental things that I've been lucky enough to do is actually be open and in London and within a community of people who are willing to help and able to help.
0: And I, I would love to see the exchanges going on on that WhatsApp group. I guess Robin and I don't really count as an InsurTech founder, but we've got some cyber experts here. Maybe one can hack into your <laughs> WhatsApp group. It's encrypted. <laughs> um, but just one question on the sort of whole insuretech concept, and of embraces lots of things these days, but you know, sort of in a simple way, we can talk about insurtechs that are building technology and selling technology, or insurtechs that actually are an MGA, an underwriting business, or in some cases even these days, becoming full-stack insurers yourselves. If, you've, if you, t- both from your own experience, but for anybody who's looking to move into this world, what advice do you have about how to assess whether they should become the technology provider selling to others or whether they should go out and be doing the underwriting themselves?
1: Yeah, really good question. Impossible to give a short answer, but I'm going to try. Essentially, and I speak from someone who's done both models, so we sold directly to customers. We actually attempted to make our platform available to insurers. We had a really hard time making that work. We went back to the customer route, and now we're going through this kind of rapid scale um, phase. So having been on both sides of the fence, I think the most important thing is to really identify which stakeholder your technology or your approach has the most immediate, simple, quantifiable value for. So if you have got um, a technology that allows you to offer much more flexible policies to customers or a much more flexible approach to buy those policies, it's really, really clear what the ROI is for the end user, the insured. Whereas if you're building a technology that can empower sales for traditional insurers or a policy administration system, the ROI is much more clear to the insurance stakeholder, the insurance company that might wanna buy it. And I think that actually it's a really common mistake that startups make is that they have an amazing proposition that they could offer to the end customer, but they think, oh, I can scale this much faster if I actually sell it directly to the insurer. And then you get caught in these long, complex, kind of 24-month, sometimes, sales cycles, which don't always end up as planned. And I've spoken to so many founders and InsurTech CEOs who have kind of died on those rocks. So identify where the clearest ROI is for the customer and then make that work and do as much as you can, bottom-up, speaking to customers and validating your technology and your approach as early as you possibly can. Get three yeses before you decide to kind of plunge into a market and raise money and, and go for it. Because there's nothing more valuable than being pulled into the market by the customer telling you, we want this.
0: Great. Well, Ed, we do want to make, I want to say, use of our audience. We want to give our audience a chance to ask you a question. So uh, has anybody got a question for Ed? Ed to Ed. So for those that don't know Ed Gaze, Ed runs the Lloyd's Lab. If you're going to build a business, go and grab Ed at some point, because I'll highly recommend the lab. Hey, Ed.
2: Uh, What made you go for car fleets as your next venture after drones?
1: We did a really comprehensive analysis of a number of markets before we actually decided to um, transition or expand from drones into motor fleets. To kind of quickly summarise, if possible, we looked at every market from electric scooters, e-bikes, small, medium and large car fleets, van fleets, truck fleets, aviation fleets, cargo fleets. And we analysed those markets from the top down, so size of the market, growth rate of the market, how connected are the vehicles in in those markets, because vehicle connectivity is one of the core um, pieces of technology that we require to be able to power our own value propositions. And then we did this bottom-up analysis that I was talking about just a minute ago. We validated our own value propositions and our technology in all of those markets, so we spoke to potential customers. There was a period of about three months where I was essentially just living and breathing... Trucking fleets and van fleets and courier fleets and small vehicle fleets, um, so that I could get to c- get inside the heads of these customers. And we actually brought in an external consultant to work with us on this. So. You know, it's sometimes really nice to, as a founder, to say one of those sentences like, oh, you know, I just felt this really intense problem and I I wish someone had solved it, so I went and solved it. But actually, we did a really analytical three-month consultancy gig to make this work. We brought someone in, we spoke to probably over 100, 150 customers and validated it from the top down and the bottom up. And we realized that automotive fleets Huge market, $160 billion globally, growing 6% a year, 33% connected here in the UK, growing at 17% a year in connectivity. So you put that together and you've got a massive market opportunity. And then the value propositions of a flexible insurance proposition that's integrated directly with um, the telematics devices, so the connectivity of the vehicles themselves. And... Um, we got three yeses. Actually, we got a lot more than three yeses from customers, and that was the validation we needed to actually go out, raise money, hire some really, really senior people, um, and, and make it work. And I'm, I'm really happy to say that now it's, it's kind of paying off that we slowed down to speed up. Ed, thank you very much, and thank you for your support for Insta. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys.
0: Next up was Ollie Brew, Head of Client Success at CyberCube, one of the founding management team, and previously an underwriter with Aspen and Liberty. So the good news is, Ollie, last time you stood on stage, we made you stand up with no notes, and you had to talk for about three minutes without any, any prompts or Q&A. It's time to give you a seat and some questions. And, and I've traded in my suit for the uh, Insure Tech Chinos. So, <laughs> so for those that don't know Ollie and don't know CyberCube, CyberCube is one of the leading modelers of cyber risk, uh, founded by Symantec, uh, according to Crunchbase, take it as you will, $35 million in funding. Ollie was one of the very early team that spun out of Symantec to build the business and was an underwriter by, by background. So um, when you last spoke at Instead London, it was back in 2018, we still got the video, by the way. You know, how, how have things changed from your initial sort of impressions of what it was going to be like at Cybercube and, and sort of where things are today? When we started,
2: um, it was a mixture of wild optimism and naivety and hard-earned kind of industry um, pragmatism. You know, I'd spent nearly 20 years underwriting and seen the uh, bureaucracy of insurance companies uh, up close. And, you know, we had this concept around uh, providing cyber analytics right across the value chain from broker to ILS and everything in between. Where it started was, you know, The problem of accumulation is massive and getting bigger, Uh, so cyber risk and systemic risk is not going away, and what's evolved is of course the threat landscape has only become more challenging, Um, but what's been fascinating for us is that the market is really kind of seizing on, you know, grabbing whatever they can to try to improve that calculus. Uh, so for us, the market is now embracing analytics in a way that I think we hadn't anticipated.
0: Similar question, it there, but a slightly different focus. So this balance between being the analytical engine or the MGA, a lot of the companies we come across, we've got one later on today, are MGAs writing cyber. That's a very valid thing to do for lots of good reasons. CyberQ went down the route of just purely being the analytical engine. How is that decision taken in the early days? Because clearly you could have gone either route. Yeah, that was a very deliberate call
2: from our perspective. Um, there's an army of cyber MGAs, many of whom do a very good job, some who do a less good job. Um, but the, uh, the, the value that we felt we could bring to the market is really around uh, supporting and partnering incumbents, and in fact some of those cyber MGAs as well. It's around taking the... Uh, The analytics, plugging it in via API, via effective use of workflows, uh, and really uh, improving the speed and the quality of decision making. Uh, And so that was a very deliberate approach to say, we're not here to tear up the rule book. We're here to partner and improve the existing infrastructure, much of which is
0: not broken. One of the things that's always impressed me about Cybercube is how you've managed to have your clients agree to be on the website and be reference sites. A lot of companies struggle because, and I think it's often in the legal department, their clients won't let them reveal who they are, which is like, you know, that's just starving the oxygen of, of growth in many ways. You were you running the team and still do, that, we're looking after the clients. What was it, you think, about what Cybercube did and you and your colleagues did to be able to convince clients to actually put their name up very early on in, before they'd fully probably proven the technology?
2: Our first client was Guy Carpenter, our second client was Chubb. Having that caliber of, of client, um, publicly speaking on our behalf, was fantastic. And I think there's two things, really. One is, is trust, and you've got to build that trust and earn that trust, and it doesn't come easily. Um, and, then, and two is, you've got to have focus. So we didn't want to be all things to all people, um, and we knew that there was a gap uh, in both, for both those organizations that um, our technology could contribute to filling. Um, And I think that that combination um, really helped us get in the door. And then since then, we've only, you know, just rapidly expanded both in our our product set and then also in the the solutions and and wrapper services we're offering.
0: Great. Well, the names are still on the website, so presumably they're still happy with what you're doing. Uh, And then another, another challenge for people building businesses is they want to reach out into the community of underwriters and people with insurance experience. For you, you know, you had progressed through your career... It was, a, I'm sure, a difficult decision to make about moving into an early-stage company. What advice would you give to people from your own perspective about what it was that gave you the confidence to come out of a, an underwriting role with an established organisation into, into you know, a higher-risk organisation? Um,
2: so for me, it was quite a simple decision. I, you know, I backed myself to get another role in the market if that was necessary, um, but I also had enough confidence in the team that I was joining Uh, that we all brought different uh, skills and experiences to the table, um, that that chemistry was really important in order to both get get the show up and running and then also attract and, uh, and build out both investors, clients and, and team members. Uh, so it's really that combination of bringing that team together uh, and then having the confidence to, to really you know, have the tenacity and focus uh, in, the, in the market that we're playing in. And you know, so far, uh, no regrets.
0: <laughs> and uh, how many people, about 75 you've got today?
2: Uh, no, we're, we're up to 130 globally. Okay. Uh, started with 12 at the beginning of 2018. We raised our Series B funding Q4 19, and uh, look out for Series C potentially
0: next year. Okay. Well, again, back to the audience. We've got a couple of minutes, literally, for
1: questions. What do you think the predictive role for somebody like CyberCube is in, an, in a threat environment that's you know, evolving so fast, and when there are new forms of ransomware, for example, being developed all the time?
2: Predictive analytics is the sort of the golden goose that everyone is chasing. Um, Look, if this was easy, we would have done it already. Um, I think the challenge is that we're trying to bring together the different sources of data that complement the industry sources like claims data and exposure data and so on, um, together with the expertise and and the the, the cyber risk skill set to really bring that all together to help... Um, improve that decision-making. So no one is uh, promising predictive power to 100%. What we're saying is that the data and the insights that we can bring are um, moving the needle in that calculus.
0: Ollie, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much. Next up is Andre Symes, co-CEO of Genesis. Andre has been a regular at many InState London events and been on stage for quite a few of them too, as well as on a podcast. Over to Robin and Andre.
3: Now, you were last here when we had a bit of a stellar uh, panel for the MGA, the New Frontier 2019.
4: What's happened since then? When we were last on stage, I think we were here with Equipsme, and we were celebrating their first year renewal. So they had gone through their first renewal cycle And that was our first customer in the UK. Since then, we've now launched about 150 products, grown the team from 70 to 120, and now broken a billion pounds on platform. So a lot has happened in the last two years.
3: Is it fair to say that most of the growth is coming from new-new who want a greenfield site to do something cool on, or are you also doing a certain amount with people who are... um, brownfield
4: with your uh, d- digital front end? It's definitely a mixed bag. The, the number of customers, the majority of the number of customers are coming from startups, but the most of the growth is coming from uh, brownfield. People that are realizing they have to digitize, they are looking for mechanisms to innovate, can't do it on the monolithic platforms they currently have, um, and they're not talking to us about launching products quick to market for them.
3: You, like us, have been banging on a bit about ecosystems and you know creating... Uh, groups of people who have uh, services that you can offer to your customers. What I hadn't foreseen was how uh, the makers of the tech and the platforms would be a natural place to kind of build those around. You've got an ecosystem. Tell me about it. How far have you got? what, what 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 sort of people are you after? How does that work?
4: Well, the approach that we took is that we've spent many years building out a very comprehensive policy and claims admin platform. Um, And we were investing about 30% of our revenue into this platform every single year, trying to keep it up to date. And we ended up building this battleship. And as the cost of connectivity in the ecosystems came down with the uptake of APIs and webhooks, it made a lot of sense to rather partner with best of breed uh, organizations to add specific value in areas of the policy lifecycle. And we currently have about 25 people in the ecosystem, all the way from uh, pricing analytics in the front through to data augmentation, claims analytics, um, and the the main reason why we pivoted towards that wasn't just so we could offer the customers like a, a menu, a la carte menu of people they wanted to work with, but what we found during the pandemic is that everybody reacted quite heavily, not knowing what is going to happen tomorrow. And having an ecosystem where you can plug in partners very quickly gives people optionality, and it allows them to pivot their businesses really quickly. Uh, as an example, in South Africa, we have uh, an insurance company there that wanted to launch a AMGA uh, to to speak specifically to parametric insurance for COVID. And it took them 10 days to put that together and, and, and launch that. So that is the optionality and the flexibility that uh, ecosystems will give you.
3: And we featured you in our low-code report, uh, and you were very... Um smart in telling me what was low-code and what was not low-code in your platform. Tell me a little bit about that. In in other words, what's the balance in your system between low-code and and the rest?
4: Yeah, so we have all the way from zero-code through to low-code and proper code, if you really want to change back and stuff. And that just comes part and parcel of having a system that consists of 26 million lines of code that you can't no-code all of it. Now... While no code makes a lot of sense from an investment point of view and it's very attractive to invest in it because you can scale quick, custom acquisition costs are really low, it's like having a set of uh, uh, generic Lego blocks. You can't build something perfectly with generic Lego. You have to have some bits that you can customize specifically and that is where we bring in our low code. So no code would be our product builder, our documentation tool, securities, users, the general day-to-day stuff that you want to change, rating, rating, And then when it comes to low code, it's about, you know, how do you change your business processes within that, uh, you know, and some of the claims, automations behind that, et cetera.
3: You've mentioned the pandemic a couple of times. Was it a help or a hindrance? Did lots of people go, oh, my God, I need to be digital and come and talk to you? Or did you find it a pain?
4: It it was an absolute explosion in Pipeline. We actually did some of the the analytics a couple of weeks back. And Pipeline grew 320% March last year to two weeks ago. So became very exciting. Having said that, the people who came to Pipeline were very apprehensive about actually putting the trigger and making the change before they knew what was going to happen post-pandemic. But I think that a lot of that is clear now. We're going back to normal. Um, and now all of a sudden, this Pipeline is turning into execution, which presents a whole new challenge.
3: Assuming we're returning to normal, which I'd like to think we are, what, in terms of your planning and strategy, do you think are the big themes that you would pick out that will sort of determine your destiny in the next couple of years?
4: At the moment, embedded insurance is really the talk of the town. And we, we've taken the approach of we actually don't really mind or care what the technology is. We'll invest in connectivity and API enablement to connect to the best of breeds of that. So I think the ecosystem approach is really, really going to uh, um, be a bigger trend within the larger carriers as they start looking for ways to innovate quicker. Um, and this is actually being helped. If you look at the funding makeup that's currently coming into InsureTech, I mean, I think we're sitting now with the, the biggest two quarters in the history of InsureTech funding at 7.4 billion. And previously we saw about 80% of that going into Quote and Bind. It's now only 50%, where the rest of that is now coming back into B2B space. So we'll be able to um, help these companies that can help the ecosystem grow quicker. You support a lot of small startup businesses with your
3: technology, and you've, you've seen some in your stable grow and be very successful. Any advice you can give to anyone in the room who's starting their own business based on what you've seen come through your doors these last two or three years?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can give you that advice from a technology point of view. We used to have this binary conversation about, we're starting out on InsurTech, we want to launch a product, do we buy or do we build technology? Now obviously I would say buy technology. But the question is actually a little bit more nuanced than that. You have to understand what your investor pressures are and how they want you to grow, and then think about how much do you buy and how much do you build, and then how do you plug in various components of the ecosystem into that because there's a slight misconception that you have to build your own technology to create IP value. So um, by building ecosystems, you can create value and, and IP simply in the construction of the ecosystem.
3: Andre, we'll keep on time. Thank you very Thank much you for very coming much. along. Good luck with everything you've done. Thank
0: you. And then, last up is. Jonathan Sprite, CEO and co-founder of Envelop Risk, going to be a really fascinating one. This one, uh, Jonathan mentions the term bordero in here. For those of you not familiar with insurance speak from the London market, a uh, bordero is simply the way in which information about the risks that have been written is provided between insurers and their clients or their brokers or their MGAs, usually in a spreadsheet form.
5: Over to Robin and Jonathan. You look exhausted. Why are you so tired? Well, we put out an announcement this morning uh, that we've received funding, or we will receive funding from SoftBank uh, for $130 million. So we've been working pretty hard to get that deal done. And that, for reasons I'm not quite sure I understand, tends to involve only working during uh, the, the night time. So, uh, but we're, we're there with that. So. Thank you.
3: When we were first doing this four or five years ago, people would turn up and they say, I'm looking for a seed round of 150 grand. And we were going, okay, we'll talk to this guy over here. We weren't expecting people to turn up two or three years later with 130 million, so well done you. What's it for? What are you spending it on? I mean, not lifestyle, but the business.
5: About a third of it would go into core technology. Our business is driven by machine learning and a large and growing data science team. That's our priority, to keep growing that, um, accumulate that data and do useful things with it. Um, but we will, have a, we will have a pot of cash now to put into risk capital where we think that's a sensible thing to do. So begin to evolve a little bit from the MGA or a strict MGA model. Um, before you ask me, no, we're not going to become an insurance company, um, and uh, we, we, we don't necessarily believe that we would need to do that, but I think it would be quite nice to put a bit of skin in the game. Uh, we've always believed very heavily on the model that we have, the technology, it's all proprietary, um, and from day one, we said we would bet on this, we'll bet on ourselves, you know. even though it's cyber in, in the main part, uh, and in the future, maybe some, some other stuff as well, but there, there's no reason we wouldn't wanna be completely aligned with the results of our, our modeling and our, our work there, so. I,
3: I mean, I got so excited about you and your raise that I didn't really say uh, what you, what you do. So perhaps we want to touch on that because 130 billion is a lot of money and, and it would be fascinating to hear what is uh, the kind of smart that makes you worth that.
5: We underwrite. so um, And it really interesting you know, comparison to CyberCube. Uh, we, we saw the same opportunity and I think it's probably fortunate that the one went one route, one, one the other route because we need, uh, we need our insurance clients to have better analytics so that they can come and talk to us about the risk. But ultimately, someone needs to be able to, to underwrite that. And we felt that um, while the insure tech opportunity overall was enormous, um, reinsurance was perhaps being a little bit ignored. Um, and we thought there was a lot of power in reinsurance that goes back you know, 150 years uh, in, in some of the cases of our competitors just to be able to get higher ground, territory, get a lot of data, diversify your risk. Um, Why not unlock that with analytics in the same way that people want to unlock distribution claims, the back office and so on, all all of which is fantastic, but we don't believe there's any no-go area uh, for the application of AI within insurance, and that absolutely means that we want to be making better decisions as underwriters. Uh, That's core for what we do.
3: You've been a sort of market person and pundit for a while. What dynamics do you see in the broader insurance market that you are playing in and
5: that you are selling to? I see two dynamics, which I think are really important. One is embracing insurtech. The other is not embracing insurtech. And those two dynamics come together in, in potentially quite an interesting way that makes me think that the topic for... You know, these kind of events in the next 12, 24 months are really about convergence and whether or not InsurTechs can be brave enough to just, you know, not just sell product to insurance companies but go and eat some of their lunch as well. But how can you do that without treading all over um, that, that industry? And how do you select partners that you're not going to look to just sort of disrupt or betray over a period of time but actually forge long-term partnerships, uh, which I think is what we do. We're actually, you know, of the view that um, that the people we work with should be there for, for, you know, way beyond just the medium term but into the future for us.
3: When we last met, you talked about something which you called no data, no deal. What do you mean when you say no data, no deal?
5: I think there's a few things we mean by that. One is just literally if you don't give us data, we won't reinsure you. So in, in the old language that means give us a border row or go somewhere else. But it means something else as well, which is just the idea that if you're a data-driven underwriting business, um, you quite obviously cannot do that without data and you must not jeopardize your integrity by, by letting you know one client here get away with not, not submitting because they're a very well-known US or French or Lloyd's Syndicate, you know, insurance company, um, you have have to really stay true to that, and that probably cost us quite a bit of business to begin with, um, and now it doesn't cost us any business at all because people understand what we do with that data. We very often share the product of the data back with the client, um, and I think people understand that by having that data, you're refining your pricing, which ultimately is good in facilitating, uh, you know, the market. So...
3: I can't say how many times we've written in our reports you can only do this if you have the data or you can only do this if you have the tech. Uh, it's still the one biggest thing that holds the industry back from fully exploiting what people are building in this room that they can't get their data into some kind of shape. So you're doing cyber now. Any, any plans to move with a new money to move out of cyber into a broader range of products?
5: We definitely will, um, but we wouldn't go crazy in terms of the types of business so again it would have to be data rich it would have to be something that we felt was emerging risk complex and just so that we can get an edge and there's, there's no point ensuring a risk which is static although I can't think of many of those so, so I doubt I doubt you'll see us going property property cats or anything like that um, but certainly the you know any, anything else where cyber is already doing the, doing the, the work for us so cyber itself is eating into liabilities um it's eating into auto and motor um and and many many other lines so if cyber takes us there we'll, we'll we'll follow that journey for sure thank you jonathan have we got any questions for jonathan
0: hi jonathan it's nice to meet you it's natasha from antworks very quick question why do you think it's so hard for your clients to share their data with you
5: A number of reasons. Insurance companies don't like sharing data. Um, It's part of their IP. Obviously, it immediately alerts us to who their clients are, um, which is itself competitive. Um, Sometimes insurance companies' data is not great, and maybe insurance companies are not over the moon at having to sort of have that conversation. Um, Although in cyber, because it's a, a relatively new class Actually, generally, the, the data's not too bad. I mean, I think it's more what do you do with that and how do you identify the risk linked to, to the exposures? So it's actually been a lot less painful than we thought it would be to get data and to use it from, from insurance companies. So.
4: Anything else? You've gone and raised a large amount, $130 million from SoftBank. Did you go out and look for them? Because they're arguably one of the biggest in the world. Did you kind of search them out or you decided to go through a um, uh, an agent? J- yeah, just curious how that came about. Was it serendipity?
5: I think serendipity plays a role in everything I've ever seen relating to, to venture capital. Um, we didn't target them specifically, albeit they were certainly on our radar and we were aware of some of their appetite and the things that they'd done or had been looking to do. And um, we... We were fairly open-minded as to the sources of, of, of where our next round of financing would come from, and um, that the conversation was actually became very deep and exciting very quickly. So we, we very quickly moved our attention to them, um, and and you know it's taken a little time, but we uh, we we we've now reached that agreement, and and of course have announced that this morning. So,
3: brilliant, Jonathan. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.
0: Well, as usual, a whole lot in there, and I hope you enjoy that as much as we did recording it on the night. And thanks to our sponsors, Envelop Risk, Genesis, Cybercube, and Flock for their support. Now, if you've got a story to tell about the products you're building, wherever you are in the world, uh, or maybe you're working at an insurer and you're trying to figure all of this stuff out and looking for alternatives to paying the hundreds of thousands of dollars you might be already for advice and insights, then you might want to talk to us about corporate membership. So contact me, Matthew Grant or Robin Mertens by LinkedIn or any of our expanding team hello at instec.london and to find out everything else we're up to all on the website www.instec.london